Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. And if you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number seven. If you don't happen to have a copy of the Word of God with you, and I always love it when people bring it, whether it's electronic or printed, you should find one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page five, and you would be at Matthew chapter seven. Now, if you drive very much, you will know that when you're out on our roads, you will see what's called caution signs. In the U.S., our caution signs are diamond in shape, and they're usually colored yellow or orange. And I want to just talk about some of the caution signs that we will often see out on our streets. The first one is this one, caution speed bumps. Now, what does that sign tell you? If you live here, you know that that likely means that you're driving through your neighborhood. And we just all love those bumps, don't we, in our neighborhood. Here's a second caution sign. Caution, watch for rocks in roadway. Now, what does that sign tell you? Well, it tells you you're likely driving somewhere in Colorado or in Pennsylvania where they have mountains and tall hills where rocks can fall down on roadways. Here's the third caution sign I want to bring to your attention. Caution, rough road ahead. Now, what does that sign tell you? <laughs> You're probably driving somewhere in the state of Oklahoma <laughs> where we just have construction everywhere or the need of construction everywhere. And then there is a fourth caution sign I want to mention, and that is this. Caution, dead end. And if you don't heed that sign, there can be tragic ramifications. We're continuing our series of messages that we've had for the last number of weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. And now we've come into a portion of the Sermon on the Mount where there is a major shift that takes place. Jesus has been, up to what we looked at last time, clarifying true righteousness. And we saw last time that he had a summary statement for all that he had taught so far in verse 12. But he's now going to shift from clarifying true righteousness to giving us cautions and warnings. And the passage we have before us today is chapter 7, verses 13 to 23. I would like to read through that section, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Jesus says, beginning with verse 13, "'Enter through the narrow gate.'" For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits." Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, the title I've given to today's message is The King's Cautions, and we're going to see three of them in this section. First of all, in verses 13 and 14, a caution about entrance into God's kingdom. And then in verses 15 to 20, a caution about false prophets. And then in verses 21 to 23, a caution about self-deception. So we're going to be looking at warnings today, and just the nature of warnings is that they're rather sober-minded, and they're fairly serious. And so we need to remember that as we work our way through this. We're going to look at some very sober things that Jesus thinks it's important for us to know. So the first caution is about caution regarding entrance into God's kingdom. And you know, life is just full, full, full of decisions and choices. Over the course of your lifetime and my lifetime, we will make tens of thousands of choices. Uh, Every day we have to make a choice about when are we going to get up, a choice about are we going to first brush our teeth or brush our hair, Are, are we going to put on a solid top or a striped shirt? We have to make these decisions and these choices all the time. What crowd am I going to run with in my life? Who are going to be my friends? Choices like what career am I going to choose? What vocation am I going to have? Who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? And when I have children, how am I going to discipline my kids? Tens of thousands of choices and decisions that we will make. Now, many of them are trivial But some of them are pivotal. And today we come to the most pivotal choice a person can make, and that is the choice that determines one's eternal destiny. And men and women, it's very important. I know there's a lot of things going on in our life, but let's just together tune in, lean in to the cautions that Jesus is sharing with us The first one is this caution about entrance into salvation and his kingdom. Now, the core thought of verses 13 and 14 is really found in the first phrase of verse 13, and that is, enter through the narrow gate. The rest of what you see in verse 13 and 14 is really an elaboration on that. Enter through the narrow gate. And he goes on to talk about here, Two gates, a narrow one and a wide one, two destinies, destination of destruction and a destination of and destiny of life, and two groups. You have the many and you have the few. 
Now, gates really aren't a, a common thing for us in our culture, except if it's a gate in your fence, but gates were a very common thing in ancient times. In fact, the city of Jerusalem had 12 gates, and those gates were designed to be rather wide because the idea was it was to bring traffic in and out of the city. But you would not leave those gates open all day long. At night, they would close those gates because they wanted to avoid a mass invasion. I mean, if you have 12 wide gates open around your city and an invasion comes at night, I mean, what are you going to do? And so what they would do is, at nighttime, usually near the main gate, there would be what might be called a narrow gate or even a small door, and that's the way that you would enter the city at night. And you could avoid a threat to the city by having a narrow gate or a small door. Now, when Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, the idea behind this is this is something that we enter one at a time. It's a little bit like a turnstile in our culture. You don't go through a turnstile, even two at once. It's one at a time. And the narrow gate is that kind of a gate. You don't go through it with a group of people. You don't go through that gate with your whole family. You don't go through that gate with a bunch of your friends. It's a single file, narrow gate. And no one can enter the gate for you. You can't have someone else enter the turnstile for you. You must go through it. He says, enter through the narrow gate. And there's also this gate that is is wide in a way that is broad. And why is it wide and why is it broad? It's designed to accommodate the crowd that wants to go through it. When I think of something that is a broad way, I always picture in my mind a multi-lane expressway. Some of you know that I lived in New Jersey two different times, and in parts of the New Jersey Turnpike, it's 14 lanes wide. So that's kind of the image I have of the broad way and the wide gate, this multiple-lane roadway. And yet Jesus says, it's so important, verse 13, that we enter through the narrow gate. You know, that word narrow is an interesting term to me because in our culture, narrow has developed a negative connotation to it. You know, we talk about people being narrow. You know, he's pretty narrow She's narrow-minded. We mean by that they're very restrictive, they're very rigid, they're intolerant, they're closed-minded, they're just narrow people. But here's what's interesting about that word, narrow. It's not necessarily a negative word. For example, if you're going to fly on a plane, you would prefer to have a narrow pilot. You don't really want an unrestricted, broad-minded pilot. Can you imagine getting on the plane, you know, loading up, and as you go by the the little cabin where the pilot is, he steps out and he goes, hey, I'm glad you're here today because I want to add some excitement to things. In in, in fact, what I want to do is I want to take off on the same runway where all the planes are landing. We're just going to try to, you know, dodge around everything and take off between other, you know. You're going, whoa, 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 whoa. I'd like a more narrow-minded pilot. Or maybe he says, you know what, when we get ready to land, here's what I want to do today. I just want you to know, I want to see how many times and how high we can bounce on the runway when we land. And you're going, no, thank you. I'd rather have a narrow 
thinking pilot. Same thing would be true of a brain surgeon. You know, if you're going to have brain surgery, you don't want one who is very unrestrictive and very broad-minded, you know? You had this pre-meeting with the brain surgeon. He says, you know what? I want to do something a little different in this surgery. What I'd like to do is I want to use some really dull instruments and see if I can see, you know, you're going, whoa. Or he says, you know what I want to do? I've always just done brain surgery, you know, by going directly in the brain. What I want to do is I want to enter into your chest and find a way, you know, up through your neck and... And you're going, no, 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 no. I, I, I would rather have a, a narrow thinking surgeon. And that's a positive idea behind the narrow gate. When Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, I want you to understand this is not Bruce who said this. This is not even Matthew who wrote the gospel who said this. This is Jesus who said this. And he's talking about every person who would ever have breath. He said, here's a caution I want you to understand. You have to enter through the narrow gate. You know, John 14, 6, Jesus said this. He said, I am the way. There's only one way. I am the truth. There's only one truth you need to know about eternity and salvation. I am the life. And then he makes this very narrow statement. He says, no one, right, you're familiar with this, comes to the Father except through me. No one includes, guess what? Everybody. It's narrow, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he's speaking of what he did on the cross. You know, all religious systems that exist in the world all say basically the same thing. They say that what man has to do is to earn his way into acceptance with God. It's about being good enough. It's, it's about having enough merit in your life. It's D.O. There's something you have to do to be accepted with God. And they'll define the do differently, but they're all saying the same thing over and over again. And it's only biblical Christianity that comes along and says, wait a minute, no, you can't work your way into acceptance with God. In fact, the words helpless and hopeless in the book of Romans, are used to describe our situation. And that's why Jesus had, who was God, had to become a man and come down on this planet to climb on a cross to pay the penalty that I deserved and you deserved. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. But he also mentions that there is a broad way a wide way that leads to destruction in verse 13. Now, it's interesting to me that that broad way, that wide way, is not marked destruction. You know, you want destruction? Go down this way. It's not marked that way at all. In fact, it's marked this way. This is the intelligent way. This is the sophisticated way. This is the independent way. For those who are self-reliant and assertive, the ones who would say, no one's going to tell me how I should live my life or what way I ought to go. I'm going to go my own way. It's not marked destruction, but that's where it leads. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way which seems right to a man. I mean, it seems like the intelligent way. I think it's the sophisticated way. I think it's the self, 
Assertive people ought to go that way. It seems right, but its end is what? What does it say? You tell me out loud. It's death. It's death. And regarding those who go down the broad way, who reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it says of them, these people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lamb and the Lord. In verse 14, he tells us that the narrow way leads to life. John 5, 24, the Lord Jesus speaking, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is their way of saying, listen up very carefully now. He who hears my word and believes him, buys into trust and trusts himself to the one who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Two gates, two ways, Two destinies. In verse 13 at the end, it says, regarding the way of destruction, it says, many are they who enter it. It's crowded. It's just kind of like the turnpike. Why do you think they have 14 lanes in New Jersey? Because it's always crowded. And the, the, the broad way is like that. It's crowded, which tells us, by the way, that the majority is not automatically right. Drives me nuts in our culture when we determine truth by who do the most people say that it is. It doesn't work that way. The majority is not automatically right, and truth is not determined by popularity. In verse 14, regarding the gate that is small and narrow, he says there that there are few that find it. When you're reading the Bible, do you ever ask yourself questions? It's a good thing to do. It's a great way to study the Bible. Just ask questions. Why is it that few people find it? Well, I think part of the answer to that is that they are reluctant to admit their inadequacy. And the truth is that we're all painfully short of the standards of God, every single one of us. I don't care how glorious you think you may be or how glorious I am. I'm painfully short of his standards, and we're all desperately in need of a savior and a rescuer. Jesus says in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. By the way, men and women, that is a call to a decision. Now, why does Jesus say all these things? Because people need to hear it. Enter through the narrow gate. It's a call to decision. It's not enough to know about Jesus. It's not enough to know about salvation. It's just not automatic that we're going to be accepted with God because we grew up in a Christian home. You know, I raised four children. I've got five grandchildren. It's a great concern to me. It was a great concern raising my kids. It's just not enough to know about these things. We don't come into a relationship with God by going to church, by being religious, by earning merit points, by being confirmed, by praying, by even doing good things. It's 
to call for a decision. The Lord Jesus said these words in John 10, 9. He says, I am the door. I am the narrow gate. If anyone enters through me, by faith in my work, he will be saved. Now, men and women, God can look inside of every heart that is here. I can't do that. But my appeal to you would be, if you have never turned to Christ to trust in him for salvation, today is the day you should make that decision to enter by the narrow gate. Second caution that Jesus is going to give to us is in verses 15 to 20, and that is a caution about false prophets. Verse 15 says, beware of false prophets. Be on the lookout for false prophets. And some of us might be saying, well, isn't the false prophet thing, isn't that sort of an Old Testament deal? Jesus says no. Keep your finger here and turn with me to the right in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, and I want to read the first three verses there. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, and he says, But false prophets also arose among the people. He's talking about the Old Testament era. Just as there will also be false teachers among you, the followers of Jesus, who these false teachers will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many people will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment, these false teachers from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, God's going to deliver. Now, false prophets, false teachers, men and women, are a real and present danger. Was there any day that you got up this week where you thought about, I need to be on the lookout for false teachers? That's what Jesus is calling us to. He says in 2 Peter 2, 1, they will secretly introduce into the believing community and those who listen, destructive heresies. In Matthew 24, 11, it says, they will mislead many people. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, Paul says, they will seek to draw away disciples so that they would follow after them. I don't know if you think this way. This is just, again, my journalism background. What is their aim? What are they trying to do, these false teachers? Well, here's what I believe the core aim is. They seek to minimize and trivialize. They seek to disparage and diminish the importance of the narrow way. That's what they are about. Minimizing and trivializing and disparaging and diminishing the importance of the narrow way. They want to run around and say, oh, it's the same God up there always. All religions lead to God. What you need to do is get busy. What are you doing for God that is going to earn you acceptance? I remember I took a course at the University of Nebraska 
in the school of religion that they had. It was led by a clergyman, and that's what he was doing in the class, minimizing and trivializing and disparaging and diminishing the importance of the narrow way. He goes, ah, you don't need to worry about that. Beware, be on the lookout for them. And then he says in verse 15, they will come to you in sheep's clothing. Because it's just interesting, you know, they, they just don't walk around with a t-shirt that says, false teacher, you know, with an arrow pointing up. <laughs> they don't do that. What they do is they wear a cross, they carry a Bible, they talk about Jesus, they write books about Jesus, they write books about the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 says, they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. These false teachers are in churches. They're in churches in our community right here and around the world. These false teachers are on television. These false teachers are at some seminaries, seminary professors. They are in sheep's clothing as they approach you, but on the interior, they are ravenous wolves. The NIV says they are ferocious wolves. What is the aim of a wolf? It is to devour something. So he's saying there's false teachers out there. Well, how are we to recognize them? How are we to know who they are? Well, verses 16 and 20 tell us we are to know them by their Fruit. Now, almost all fruit, at a glance, looks really good. I don't know if you've heard about yew berries, Y-E-W, but yew berries are just very attractive when you see them at a glance. They're always with a lot of greenery. They're this wonderful red color. And you just look at a yew berry and you think, man, I'd like to pick one of those and just pop it in my mouth. But actually, they're quite harmful. They have these poisonous seeds in, inside of them. So it's not just looking at fruit casually. We need to look at fruit carefully. And he says, you'll know them by their fruit. And I'm going to point out two ways, two arenas of fruit we are to look at. The first one is their character, how they live. And the second one is their message, what they say. This is how we know about them. We look at their character and how they live. Oh, and it was a number of years ago when I was actually busy traveling to Latvia and we were coming across all sorts of weird opposition there. I, I decided to look at the New Testament and study what does it say is the motivation of false teachers. I looked at every passage that addressed the subject matter. And I came up with three answers to that question. Some of them appear in some passages. Some of them appear in other passages. Sometimes you have multiple ones. But there's three things that motivate a false teacher. The first thing that motivates a false teacher is sensuality. 2 Peter 2.2, we read it earlier. There's something in the sexual arena involved in all of this. And we've all heard stories of that over the years. There's just some sensuality involved. Second motivation of a false teacher is greed, 2 Peter 2, 3. There's money involved. 
You know, we, we see it in our own politicians, even here in the state, in the state representatives, the ones who've gotten involved in sensuality and, the, and even with greed issues, just a motivation of a false teacher. That's why they talk about money. You need to send your offering. You need to send your money. You know, send this, send that. I need more offering. We need more money. It's money, money, money. And then the third motivation of a false teacher is what I would call popularity. They love to have a following. Acts chapter 20, verse 30, they like people to follow after them. Now, that's the motivations of a false teacher were to look at their character and how they live, but they attempt to disguise themselves. But here's what happens. Eventually, what is in our heart will emerge. That's what's happened with some of our politicians here locally. Things were going on in here, but eventually it emerged out. And the corrupt values that are on the interior will eventually result in a corrupt life. And eventually, those things will be manifest. So we're to look at the fruit, the character of how they live, but secondly, the message and what they say. Is what they teach, does it align with Scripture? I still remember during college, uh, several of us visited a college Sunday school class. First time we ever in the church. In the college group, and they had a guest speaker who was, guess what, a false teacher. And he was presenting this false teaching, and what he was really doing was spiritually stapling all these regular college students in that church right to the wall. Their problem was they did not know the Word of God. They weren't equipped to evaluate what he was saying. Now, I'm a guest, and I stayed quiet for a while, but eventually I had to say, you know, I'm sorry, this is my first time here, but the Bible says this about what you just said. In fact, we had an interesting time in the rest of that class together. <laughs> we look at the fruit, the message of, of what they say. So it's not just, oh, do they say the name of Jesus? Oh, do they carry a Bible? Oh, do they quote from the Bible? No, 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 no. We need to look carefully at it. And by the way, false teachers tend to do any one or more of three tactics, just so you have an, uh, you're alert to this. One thing they tend to do is to twist Scripture. Second Peter 3.16 talks about that. They take it and they just kind of twist it and torque it around. A second tactic that they will do is they will underplay the issues of sin and judgment. Lamentations 2.14 talks about that. We had people in the recognized Christian community over the last number of years where that's exactly what they've stood up publicly and said. They're minimizing the issues of sin and judgment. And the third tactic that they will tend to do is they would like to say what people want to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. Oh, you want to hear about just being positive all the time and thinking good thoughts? Sure, I'll talk about that. I love what Hayden Robinson said. He said this, the message of the Bible doesn't have to do with self-image, self-help, success, making money, winning, or staying healthy. Its truth has to do with our sinfulness before God and being made right before him. And that comes about because Jesus Christ, who preached this sermon, went out and died to make it happen. He paid the penalty for all our sin. Right on, Dr. Robinson. The first 
caution that Jesus gives us is a caution about entrance into the God's kingdom. The second one is a caution about false prophets. The third one is a caution about self-deception in verses 21 to 23. Now, this is a very real and present danger for two groups of people. Number one, it is a real and present danger, this self-deception idea, for someone who was raised in a Christian family. You know, raised from a young age where you have all this information floating around you. It's also a real and present danger for those who, who've been around church, you know, for much of their life. Why is it a real and present danger? Because it is possible to know about God. It is possible to know the Bible stories and even be able to recite some of them like Daniel and the lion's den. It's possible to attend a church regularly. It's possible to be involved in religious activities. It's possible to even have been an eyewitness of God working in other people's lives. But we've never entered by the narrow door. And being raised in a Christian family and being around church is not enough. Because we must make a decision to have a personal relationship with the living God. And Jesus says, for those who are self-deceived, they're going to fail to pass muster on the judgment day, and I'm going to say to them, depart from me. Look at verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22, many... Fascinating to me. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do these various things in your name? Many, he says. I really think the self-deceived group might be a whole lot bigger than we would imagine. And he talks about what's going to happen on that day in verse 22. That's the day of judgment. And he's going to say to these people who have been self-deceived in verse 23, depart from me, I never knew you. It doesn't mean, he's not saying, I never heard of you. Never heard of Bruce, yeah, sorry. No, he's using no in the Old Testament sense of having an intimate relationship with. He says, I don't have an intimate relationship with you. How does that happen? How does self-deception happen? Well, it can happen, first of all, by being satisfied with an intellectual knowledge of God. You know, years ago, there was a master's study done at the University of Oklahoma. They talked to people who identify themselves as Christian. Here's what they found out. A majority of them accepted the existence of God. They accepted the deity of Christ. They even accepted the reliability of the Bible. But many of them did not accept the idea that it is necessary to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior. It was just not necessary. It can happen by being satisfied with an intellectual knowledge of God. It can happen by being reliant upon religious activities for God. You know, uh, my wife Janet will tell you, if you talk to Jay about this, when I met her, that's right where she was, reliant on religious activities for God. I do this, I do that. And people will do that. They say, well, I, I regularly attend church. I partake of communion. I was baptized. I was confirmed. Even at times, I've had eye-catching spiritual experiences. And you say, when you look at these verses, well, how, how can someone who doesn't really know Christ as Savior do these kinds of things? Well, Judas did them. 
The claim is not that they did them in God's power. They did them in the name of Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is enter through the narrow gate. Now, again, freeze frame for just a sec. Who is it who enters through the narrow gate? Well, look at verse 21. He said, as he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven who will enter. I just love John 6.40 here because it's the very words of Jesus. Thinking about that, the one who does the will of my Father, this is what Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father. That everyone who beholds the Son sees Jesus for who he is, for what he accomplished on their behalf, and believes in him, and trusts themselves to his work as their only hope for forgiveness and eternity, they will have eternal life instantaneously, and Jesus promises, I myself will raise them up when? On the last day. Has there ever been a time in time-space history when you embraced Christ by faith? You know, God can see directly into our soul and into our heart. I can't do that, but I ask that question. Has there ever been a time when you did that, when you allowed him to become the leader of your life? And if you haven't yet ever done that, I don't care how many times we've been to church, don't be self-deceived. Now, we've covered a lot of ground. I want to just draw it all together for a moment with some life response that we can have, having listened to all of these things and these three cautions. First life response is this. Make the right choice. Two gates, two destinies, two groups. Right now, as you listen to my voice, where do you stand? And if you haven't yet ever trusted in Christ... You can settle it today once for all. Just like Artis at the orphan camp as a high school leader, finally it all came together and he said, yeah, I want to enter by the narrow gate. We're going to close with a prayer that you can repeat to express your heart in just a moment. Second life response. First one, make the right choice. Second one, be alert and be a Berean. Acts 17.11 talks about the people who lived in Berea. And it says they were the ones, when they were taught, they checked the word of God to see whether these things be so. And that's what we all ought to be, Bereans. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we just, we thank you for these cautions. And for those maybe who've never yet trusted in Christ as Savior and in the leader of their life, I want to just lead them in this prayer. You can just repeat this prayer in your heart to God if you really feel this way. It goes like this, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I acknowledge that I am a sinner and am separated from you. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Jesus, we thank you so much for these cautions you have given to us today. We thank you for the way of salvation, the narrow way, but the way that leads to life. We thank you for your grace. 
And indeed, it is a scandal of grace that you would die in my place. Amen. Amen.